Good day. You're tuned in to the 23rd edition of Free City Radio. I'm your host, Stefan Christoph in Montreal. It is Tuesday, January 7th, 2021. Thanks for being with us. Today, uh, I'm going to be featuring an interview and also some audio from a community press conference uh, speaking out um, to highlight uh, the ways that um, communities impacted by systemic marginalization are disproportionately uh, affected by the COVID-19 pandemic here in Montreal. But of course, that's a a larger systemic uh, reality we're seeing in many cities uh, across the world. Uh, So we'll get to that in the podcast um, a bit later. Thanks again for being with us. Um, It's uh, winter 2021 here in Montreal, Uh, snow on the ground. Um, happy to be with you. Thank you for listening. But to first start the podcast today, I wanted to feature a conversation I had with Veronica Stoyanova, uh, who is a researcher um, and writer, uh, is a lecturer at Kent University in the UK. Veronica is originally from Bulgaria and has written a very important piece for Jacobin magazine uh, that looks at the history of uh, Bulgarian uh, social and economic issues since 1989. And really what this uh, piece looks at is the ways that um, the post-Berlin Wall uh, economics in Bulgaria have really been pushed and shaped by the International Monetary Fund uh, that has seen the closure of many, many public institutions, medical um, facilities, hospitals and schools, Um, This text looks at the ways that economic and social injustice uh, were uh, really boosted by a series of neoliberal reforms. Uh, It didn't take place all at once, uh, but over, um, well, basically since 1989. I thought this uh, interview with Veronica was really important in the contemporary context uh, because over the past uh, six months, there's been sustained protests in Bulgaria. They have focused on corruption. However, the social and economic inequalities really have driven uh, the context for these demonstrations. Um, and you know, I should mention that uh, Bulgaria is one of the largest um, Uh, has one of the largest rates of uh, population loss in the world. Uh, In some ways on par with Syria, there's no active war in Bulgaria, but there's so little opportunity economically that people are leaving en masse. A lot of migrant workers to Western Europe. Bulgaria, of course, is the poorest um, member state of the European Union. Um, bordering Turkey, the far southeast corner of Europe. Um, And, uh, you know, this is a context where we see um, population decline and growing inequality. Um, So I thought it was important to speak with Veronica about this um, because I think the situation in Bulgaria really points to the ways that um, neoliberal economics uh, have in many contexts um, driven inequality. We've seen that, of course, throughout Latin America. I was particularly interested, of course, um, Bulgaria is not in the mainstream news, the Balkans in general, um, but that definitely won't remain a constant. And 
the danger of, um, you know, social conflict um, within the Balkan region uh, is something that will only become more of a possibility with growing inequality, uh, which is definitely the case in Bulgaria, but also many regions of the former Yugoslavia. Um, and so here's the conversation I had with Veronica. I'm Veronica Stoyanova, um, a lecturer in political sociology at the University of Kent in Canterbury um, in the UK. Um, yes, I recently wrote this piece. Um, actually, I wrote it for um, Rosa Luxemburg Foundation, and then it was republished in um, Jacobin. Um, I aimed to, I think, to offer kind of a very brief, but as far as possible informative piece um, about uh, quite a long and complicated period. Um, obviously the transition from uh, state socialism um, to what formally came to be called um, liberal democracy and free market economy, but essentially to liberal capitalism. Um, and I think what I aim to do is to highlight um, the quite traumatic and, and unprecedented, really, um, social costs um, of this now over 30 year long liberal austerity regime, um, which, as I say, um, is often quite chaotic and often experimental in practice. Um, and Bulgaria is, for example, a testing ground for, um, for some uh, socioeconomic um, policies. But it is as chaotic and experimental as it is, it is quite consistent in its neoliberal logic. Um, essentially, the, the point of um, pretty much everything they tried to do was to roll back the all-powerful state socialist um, um, all-powerful all state and to clear the grounds for doing business to create these business friendly um, this business friendly environment uh, but again at the at the on, on the back of uh, essentially the most vulnerable um, in society and creating more and more vulnerable people along the way um, so this is yeah essentially what I aim to do well, there's, there's a lot of details to get into. Could you talk about why looking at this, um, well, recent history over the last 30 years um, is important to understand the protests that have been happening in Bulgaria over the last months, just as an example of a contemporary event that has been really important for the country? Um, yeah, thank you. Mm. Okay, that's quite quite a complicated um, question. Now, one reason really um, that this piece you probably thought was um, different to others, um, to many others, is that it precisely it highlights. I, I aim to highlight um, the socio-economic conditions of. Um, uh, 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 of our lives during the transition, which very rarely happens, including in the past decade or so, particularly um, between 2013, 2012-13 and today, we've seen numerous um, street mobilizations. 2013 was marked by two mass waves of, um, of protests that took um, thousands of people on the street um, in Sofia and small town Bulgaria as well. Um, and more recently, as you say, we've seen um, quite consistent, um, again, mobilizations which 
have these kind of quite, you know, uh, passionate and, and, and strong calls for social transformation. But I think what very often um, happens during those um, protests, even though I, it's very difficult, I don't want to lump together, that they're quite heterogeneous, there's all sorts of social groups that go out on the street, but the sort of dominant voices that um, get to be heard out there in the public sphere, those who consistently frame the, the problem in terms of, um, for example, um, corruption. Um, frame, frame the problem as one to do with, um, you know, our Bulgarian or Balkan or East European inability or lack of capacity to create this original capitalism, which essentially, um, you know, the West have created and we had to imitate. So the problem to me gets often displaced in, in, this, um, in this way, because it turns out that the problem really is kind of a one of cultural inability to um, to achieve this long coveted capitalism that was essentially for many, you know, promised in 1989 as the kind of system that would bring about the consumerist bliss of the of the of the West and would, um, you know, bring about better days and better lives um, uh, for many. Um, but what's being missed out in this picture, I think, is that um, it is the very problems of the capitalist system per se. It's the very kind of um, quite wild, if you want, uh, capitalist um, system that we've established that is creating the, the problems that um, whose consequences I'm also describing in, in, in the piece. So the moment we, we frame the problem as want to do with um, very often say immoral politicians who very easily um, get bribed by uh, businesses. We miss to see the bigger picture. I mean, um, you know, there needs to be businesses who bribe those politicians. They need, we need to explore the kind of this, the, the way the system itself allows for this symbiosis between political actors and business actors to um, to enter those kind of relationships that um, in the end, obviously, are quite harmful um, to, to society. So, yes, it's those kind of socioeconomic um, analysis, which I think are often missing. There, there's a group of us, it's not just me, who, are, who have been recently trying to, um, to talk about these, um, but we're still, I think, quite um, not heard enough, I would say. Well, thank you so much uh, for, for sharing that. Uh, I really appreciate that context. Um, if you could talk a bit about the ways that the transition, um, both in the last couple of years, but also, you know, since 18, uh, excuse me, since 1989, has uh, impacted um, communities, socially disadvantaged communities, also rural communities, uh, um, and, and the ways that these um, this unequal development, as it were, in terms of the benefits of a free market economic system have led to inequalities uh, in Bulgaria specifically, and why that's relevant uh, for uh, our understanding of Bulgaria's place, not just in the Balkans, but in as the poorest member state of the European Union. Okay, another big question. I'll try to 
to to have a few things kind of chip in and try to um, to answer at least partly. Thank you. Um, so the the period of the of the transition um, starting in 1989, um, I think it's it's quite clear um, has led to enormous social inequalities, very very deep social inequalities, but also very abruptly, very quickly. Um, uh, it's thousands of people who who lost their jobs in the first um, few months of the um, transition, and then because there's, there's different periods, I won't go into detail. But um, after 1997, in the period of four years, another, and I think I've got the number there, two two hundred and seventy-five um, thousand people also lost their jobs. So um, enormous social dislocation, um, essentially. These were actual state policies deciding to put working people within public institutions out of work. Yes. So essentially, if I, if I take a step back um, and, and start from the beginning, I'll try to be brief. Um, in, after 1989, we initially have a very unstable uh, period of um, about six years with um, changing, quickly changing governments. We have five elected and four interim um, governments. During that period, um, we have this complicated relationship with uh, the two key international financial um, uh, players, the IMF, the International Monetary Fund, and the World Bank, mm -hmm. who try to begin to kind of um, instruct the, the development, the, the kind of hand down sort of guidelines about how the transition is meant to happen. There's quite a lot of um, chaos on the ground and some is picked, some is not. It's, it's quite a messy um, sort of situation. Um, but still, as messy it is, as, as it is, there are several, there are about I think four key developments that are, we're being instructed to, 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 to do. Um, there's liberalization, uh, um, and it's a it's a kind of a particular shock liberalization of prices. For example, in um, ninety seven percent of prices, including food prices, I say that in the article, get liberalized um, in February nineteen ninety one, which triggers high in inflation, for example, as well. Um, there's there's um, obviously an instruction to cut subsidies, to cut wages, to cut social um, welfare expenditure, secure, social security um, costs. So imagine all of these people who have lost their jobs are now out there with facing very little assistance, kind of fast shrinking assistance from the state. Um, and and obviously a kind of a, a, a privatization process that the IMF and the World Bank are encouraging us to do because the state owns everything, right? It owns all the, the factories and means of production. And now all of these need to be somehow uh, put into private hands. Now, who's going to have those? That's actually another big question. Um, all the kind of legal and uh, illegal and semi-legal uh, semi ways in which the privatization process happened. But essentially, returning to the social costs of it, um, this involved the shutting down of, of an enormous amount of um, of all these workplaces, um, in, obviously at the cost of, um, or rather as a consequence, you have the mass layoff of, um, of, of people. Um, and the final uh, instruction is for um, land and property um, uh, restitution. So you have, but that again happens in, in several phases. 
Um, so all of these, as you say, are state-led um, uh, policies that follow quite strict guidelines from the IMF and the World Bank. And again, this happens in a somewhat messy way until 1997. But what happens in 1997 is that um, there's a quite severe banking currency and grain crisis at the end of 1996. Um, to deal with that, a currency board regime is imposed. That essentially hands all economic decision-making to the IMF. Bulgaria ceases to have any control um, over its economic policy making, really. Um, and uh, another government is elected, uh, the opposition, the democratic opposition, who begin quite a, an intense uh, process of, of privatization of, every, of, of all um, assets and restitution, all, all of those. They kind of intensify all of these policies that I just um, described. So between 1997 and 2001, over these next four years, um, a lot of this essentially um, happens. Again, at the cost of numerous um, lives and livelihoods, because I think we need to remember that the moment we, we, we say, okay, unemployment jumped, you know, skyrocketed. We're not just saying that people have lost their jobs. We're saying that a lot of these people um, have, you know, being, uh, say, um, left out on the streets. Um, for many of these, has involved uh, tremendous health health problems that have killed them, etc. So, so, so obviously, it becomes a domino effect. That's a very, very traumatic kind of um, experience for hundreds of thousands of um, of people. What many have referred to as the losers of the of the transition. And I, I have lots of numbers. I think I've tried to have snippets of facts and figures in the in the article to illustrate this. Um, but essentially, the other um, the other things that um, these international financial institutions um, begin to do is also in return for okay. So, so the, the the reason why they're so successful at um, you know dictating those changes is that um, they are essentially we we carry those out in return for loans, so-called structural adjustment um, loans. So there are very strict criteria we need to fulfill in order to receive um, that kind of money. So for example, in order to receive, um, I think it was called structural, what is it called, protection, so social protection adjustment fund, I think, um, loan. Uh, in order to receive the money for that, um, the social security costs, um, are being slashed, you know, the, the welfare system is being um, decimated. So access to pension, uh, to pensions and, um, and things like that. Uh, it's very, again, I, I list quite a few of the more specific, just as example, more specific um, policies. Um, there's further um, what we can call a sort of a flexibilization of the workforce, um, kind of carried out with Quite, um, quite an unprecedented, again, loss of workers' rights. The unions are nowhere to be seen anymore. I mean, they're there formally, but they've completely kind of lost their, their leverage against um, state institutions, um, et cetera. So it's quite a, you know, a, a quick and relentless process of loss of, um, of, of rights for, for, for workers, for the, you know, the mass of people. 
Um, then as part of the uh, privatization and liberalization process, we have the um, privatization of the energy sector as well. Um, and as a consequence today, paradoxically, um, I think the latest figures show that um, half of Bulgarians are classed as, are categorized as um, energy poor. So um, energy prices have skyrocketed um, after the privatization uh, process in the sector. Um, schools, I also highlight this um, in the article as well. Um, and this is one, one example of, of, a, of an actual experiment that the World Bank um, did. They closed 800 schools in the country, uh, which basically meant that a lot of children had to take school buses to go to um, another you know, village or town. Um, where they would often be regrouped in larger um, classes with, you know, school um, children of different ages, for example. Um, and as a consequence, obviously, what happened? A lot of children dropped out. Um, today, um, I think the numbers say one third of um, children in rural areas drop out of school early. And when you when you narrow this down to just Roma children, then this number grows to six to seven percent. Uh, so it's again another kind of dire sort of um, picture. Um, uh, the this sort of experiment with closing down, closing off of the schools, and the World Bank um, kind of obviously learns from its its um, mistake and never recommends this um, again. So they kind of, I suppose, admit this as a kind of a failed failed experiment. But you know, the, the, the fate of the, the, the children who dropped out of school um, during this period is not exactly reversible or anything. Um, I highlight in, in, in the article then that um, the other kind of key historical moment, apart from the 1997 moment, is 2007 when Bulgaria joined the EU. Um, this is the point at which it was no longer so much the IMF and the World Bank that were um, dictating um, economic policy, but um, those uh, kind of economic decisions now were carried out under the supervision of the European Commission from now on. But essentially, the kind of um, reforms that the Bulgarian state continued to, to carry out continued. Um, it was particularly, I highlight that in the article, um, it's particularly um, optimization sort of um, uh, policies in the areas of um, healthcare, of um, education, of the judiciary. Um, a lot of this has to do with kind of implementing marketization, kind of market mechanisms in, um, in for example, schools, um, universities, um, hospitals. Now, thankfully, no um, schools, universities, or um, hospitals have been privatized, but they have been largely kind of slowly but surely turned into kind of mark, um, profit-making enterprises um, or kind of just the, the logic has been turned around away from the provision of a public service to service to, um, to turning profit. Um, this has happened through um, things like um, practices like uh, delegated budgets where each school, for example, would have its own um, 
would have power over its own budget and would have would, would kind of put schools in competition with each other and universities etc uh, kind of project-based financing as well imposing this, this sort of ranking system that I mean a lot of people uh, in the west are familiar with a lot of this a lot of what I'm describing is really um, is kind of has its parallels and really comes from obviously um, similar Western uh, developments. But I think I read this somewhere had likened um, the developments in the Eastern Bloc as the kind of same neoliberal um, sort of policies, but on steroids. So we do, so kind of more intensified, um, I suppose. And obviously in its consequences, again, more intense, uh, more dire, I suppose consequences. Um, in terms of understanding the power dynamics at play, can you talk about the fact that these uh, frameworks of policy that, I mean, in 2020 uh, have shown uh, to basically lead to growing inequality in Bulgaria and, and also, you know, we see similar realities in the Balkans in general, um, but the fact that these frameworks of policies weren't indigenous to the region but you know you mention a lot the IMF but I'm just wondering if you could underline that point. You mean to what extent this is not just uh, in Bulgaria do you mean? Sorry I'm not sure I got your question. No problem I just mean in terms of the fact that the frameworks of policy are really driven by IMF uh, by, you know, you talk about the transition towards the European Union um, and, and how these policies have had um, sort of the impacts of neoliberalism on steroids, uh, as has been talked about. The fact that, yes, there were Bulgarian politicians um, that were involved and also, of course, people in the private sector were involved in pushing forward these policies. But in fact, the, the, the larger power um, in terms of the frameworks, you know, if we're talking about neoliberal re reform in the UK, for example, or in France, uh, which, you know, still hasn't really gone to the same level, you know, I mean, Macron is still speaking about modernizing the unions in France, and this is in 2020, uh, mm. because of social revolt, there, there is a huge struggle I mean, the rate of unionization in France is much lower than it was a decade ago. However, there's this huge force um, that counteracts these, uh, these policies. Whereas um, because of the shock, sort of the shock doctrine of, of policy post-1989 in Bulgaria, it seems there's uh, less capacity because of um, less access to resources and educational institutions for people to resist. Um, yeah. And I'm just wondering if you could talk about the inequality of that dynamic, that how it's important to not look at every EU member state as, as the same in terms mm -hmm. of access to power, access to ideas, access to the decision-making frameworks that drive policy. Yes, absolutely. I, I agree with everything you're saying, really. It's an important thing to, to, to highlight. I think there are, I mean, 
if we think of the beginning of the, the this period of the, the transition, um, I'm not entirely sure. Um, I mean, there are different readings, there are different narratives, and I've read lots of memoirs that um, that seem to refer to the period as this kind of, um, some highlight a, a certain euphoria, um, kind of a more of the, on the part of the triumphalist kind of narrative, um, which was a sort of, tendency to to try and just quickly just copy literally copy and paste you know the the model from from the west and uh, not really challenge it challenge it all that much um kind of imitate Ivan Kristov one of the most famous um Bulgarian kind of liberal thinkers uh, highlights uh, pr precisely this this aspect of the transition the imitative process um that many many of of us, kind of my parents, I suppose, generation, uh, kind of very often uncritically embraced. And I'm, I want to be quite careful in, in that because I, I don't want it to sound as if I'm, you know, saying that these were all very kind of uncritical, um, you know, people who who didn't have a capacity to think for themselves, et cetera. So uh, the things are a lot more complex than that. But overall, there is the, 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 there would have been that kind of quite significant um, urge to embrace um, one specific model. And that's not really just, you know, Bulgaria. You do you did have that kind of, obviously, the um, end of history, et cetera, more global narrative um, that pronounced... Um, liberal capitalism as the kind of winning model. So it's not like people really had that much of a, of, of a, of a choice. Um, at some point, obviously, slowly people would have, um, would have seen that things aren't really working the way they should be. And I think this is obviously where things go wrong because very often we attribute um, uh, the problem to the wrong uh, solutions to the wrong sorry problems to the wrong kind of sources um, but this also we are able to say kind of with hindsight right um, I'm not entirely sure to what extent they would have been able to do that um, earlier on but truth is um, for a big chunk of the, the this period um, people in less powerful countries like uh, Bulgaria would have had very little um, avenue for resistance. Um, essentially, and again, Ivan Kristov describes this quite eloquently, um, he says, whatever people, who, whoever they voted for, whoever we voted for, um, it really didn't matter whether you elect a left-wing or a right-wing government. It didn't matter whether you elected the uh, Bulgarian socialists or um, right-wing governments. The policies they were to follow were the same partly initially in, uh, in the early 90s because of very strict conditions and criteria we had to um, follow. And later because, and overall, I suppose, not just later, uh, because of the kind of global geopolitical um, conditions and kind of restrictions within which um, particularly less powerful countries like Bulgaria operate. Um, we can't, it's very difficult to just decide to do something different. Um, and you can see the extent to which um, institutions like the European Union these days uh, have quite significant power over what happens um, nationally. Um, it was in during the um, 
2013 protests in the summer, which were against the Bulgarian Socialist uh, Party, which had just um, won elections. And the European Union um, were quite, quite keen to, to uh, meddle with this. With this. I, I suppose in their imagination, the Bulgarian Socialist Party would have, this is my interpretation, would have posed a threat to, uh, at the time, particularly the kind of austerity program that the country was to follow. And they, they obviously would have liked uh, a more, uh, you know, center-right government that would have definitely kind of not strayed um, away from this but you see the extent to which even you know even as big a thing as as government elections um is being meddled with let alone the kind of more kind of behind the scenes um kind of economic policies which people have very little access to to kind of in terms of um knowledge so yes it's i suppose it's quite a complicated um sort of picture but very little i suppose opportunity for um for real resistance. I think this is slowly, slowly emerging, um, but nowhere near as the kind of strong resistance that you described, for example, in France, kind of with a long um, traditions of um, union politics, etc. Um, thank you so much for sharing your thoughts on that. I, I, I was uh, wondering if, if you could talk a bit about um, Bulgarian um, politics in relation to what you're saying as a Balkan nation. Uh, and I, I know that we could go in a lot of directions there, but what I mean is uh, locating um, contemporary politics and economics in Bulgaria uh, within the region. Um, and um, often, you know, since Bulgaria joined the European Union, there seems to be a huge focus on um, economics and also decision-making in relation to the EU. Um, however, culturally and economically in a historic sense, uh, the country is linked to its neighbors, um, of course. Um, and that includes Turkey, that includes the countries of the former Yugoslavia, of course, Greece. Um, and so I, I'm just wondering um, for you, um, as a as a researcher and writer, and and I really appreciated the detail in your article on, that uh, you mentioned had been a, initially uh, worked on in collaboration with the Rosa Luxemburg Foundation, but was published uh, through Jacobin. Um, uh, so thank you for that. But I'm just wondering if um, you could talk a bit about um, uh, looking at. Uh, Bulgaria's continued relationship to the region and, and, and how it's important to think about the fact that, say, for example, almost, I mean, not the majority, but a number of neighboring countries to Bulgaria really have nothing formally to do with EU policymaking. If we're talking about Turkey, if we're talking about numerous parts of the former Yugoslavia, um, so it seems like there's this strange disconnect where, you know, you're talking about the IMF. Of course, the IMF has, has, has a role. But in terms of the EU, Bulgaria's neighbors aren't involved in those same processes of power. But on a cultural, economic, regional level, there is interaction on the daily, right, in terms of like 
networks of trade, in terms of goods and services, in terms of production, in terms of the same products that are being made, uh, uh, you know, like in terms of, you know, the production of, of the, the very essence of export that Bulgaria can sort of rely on, like um, a lot of those products are being made by Bulgarian neighbors that are not, um, that are not part of the EU in the same way. So I'm just wondering uh, in terms of locating the, the economics of Bulgarian um, inequities, which your article does very well. I'm just wondering if you could talk at all about the, the fact that um, it's, economic reality still remains Balkan, despite the role of the, the EU. I, I, I hope that you, you, you see where I'm coming from. I do, I do, and appreciate your comments. I think I, I could say very little because I'm, I don't consider myself an expert on, on that question, so I could just offer a sort of an opinion based on more superficial, I suppose, sort of knowledge. Um, I think... <sighs> Bulgaria's uh, sort of partly because of those processes I was describing of or more generalized kind of orientation, geopolitical orientation of the country uh, towards this kind of, you know, um, in newly found embrace um, of, of, of the West. Bulgaria's kind of shunned away and tried to kind of escape from itself, if you want, and escape from literally escaped from its Balkan identity in many ways, kind of culturally, uh, at least rhetorically in, in political speech. And I think as part of this, um, you also could see over the years quite significant kind of um, inclinations to, to consider um, neighboring nations more as um, competitors on a on a kind of a European and global mar market, um, or again as part of these attempts to attract foreign direct investment, for example. Um, so you could very clearly kind of see the extent to which both on a political speech kind of level and a, on a more sort of lay kind of popular level, the, the kind of attitudes are revolve around, um, you know, kind of this competitive urge to outdo, you know, Romania, as particularly as we've been grouped um, as part of EU accession, uh, Turkey as well, on things like um, what I also highlight in the article as well, the kind of selling points of, um, of the country's economy to, to do with um, a low tax rate, a flat tax rate, really. Um, uh, very cheap, but again, highly trained, the kind of usual mantras that go with in political speech, uh, cheap labor that's highly trained, etc. And I think it was very recently, and I am sorry, I don't remember on top of my head, it was, I think it was a German manuf car manufacturer, was it? Of, of, of quite a big um, uh, corporation which was uh, looking to um, start um, operating in either Bulgaria or Turkey and in the end chose to to um, to settle for Turkey even though Turkey has higher taxation um, uh, tax rates and um, and apparent well according to lots of Bulgarian uh, commentators Bulgaria has a friendlier uh, kind of uh, what do they call it uh, 
business climate, etc. So it's within those kind of um, frames of, com you know, competing for foreign direct investment that a lot of the relations, I think, um, with with neighbors have have been articulated within. Um, I suppose. Then there's also, um, I think, the the the, the other a completely different plane and a different, a different set of problems to do with the rise of conservative ideologies and the kind of this um, patriotic narrative that um, often that often goes against um, any kind of hope for friendly relations with um, uh, with neighbors like um, Turkey, Serbia, Macedonia. Um, etc. So this is, I think, a growing problem, and 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 will probably a bit. But I mean, I'm obviously saying something quite um, quite obvious. So it is within those, uh, on the one hand, economic, and on the other hand, um, um, sort of cultural uh, problematics that relations tend to Bulgaria's relations tend to be positioned in my in my mind, obviously. But again, this is more of a kind of a based on more superficial knowledge of. Bulgaria's positioning on the Balkans, really. Thank you so much for sharing your thoughts on that. I really appreciate it. The last question was just, uh, um, thank you again for your text uh, uh, that, that you published outlining a lot of the history and background about the ways that neoliberal economics were introduced in Bulgaria since 1989. If you could just uh, mention once again, uh, well, actually, if you could just mention the name of your piece, if people want to search it, and um, also just finally, um, why it was important for you to work on this personally um, as a progressive Bulgarian in the diaspora. Now, this, you're going to laugh at this. This is embarrassing, but the, the title changed several times. And I think the Jacobin one changed the Rosa Luxemburg. So I need to actually open it to see, to see what the, 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 late, the, the one that ended up in um, Jacobin was. Oh, it's okay. Uh, but maybe uh, I, I can find the name. Uh, I, I realized that, you know, it's cool, actually, that the text was published in, in numerous locations. Uh, and, and I was really happy to see it. So maybe if you could, if you could share a bit about why it was important to work on that text as a progressive Bulgarian in the, in the diaspora. Um, I think I tend to identify myself as part of this growing network of um, sort of progressively thinking, um, you know, leftist, um, particularly young as well, um, people, most of us working in academia, and we tend to be, quite a lot of us are scattered around the world, um, some of us based in, um, in Sofia, and I think it's just part of this need to 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 talk and need to raise issues that we feel are not raised enough um and and are quite pressing my friends uh, back in sofia have been working quite um quite hard on um the problem of tax for example trying to um to um call for um, a progressive taxation policy um hopefully um one day and they've been engaged in um, in in, the, in those campaigns to call for for this, for example, taxation, um, 
And so some work is happening also in terms of um, the unions um, in Bulgaria. And uh, many of them also engaged with um, other leftist groups in, uh, in Serbia, in Macedonia, um, in Croatia, in Romania, etc. So I think it's just part of this, um, you know, quite consistent on the part of my friends particularly, but also I'm trying to be a, a, as you know, as helpful as I can in um, raising those voices, kind of more progressive um, voices, which are which have been for far too long marginalised and pushed pushed aside, and particularly kind of dismissed as um, you know communist. <laughs> the kind of evoking this good old um, uh, kind of uh, zombie communism kind of. Um, mantra you know the the moment you um you call for um, salary raise or um you know progressive taxation or uh, increasing um social security uh, provision etc all of this you know kind of makes you a stalinist kind of um narrative so trying to break to break this essentially um but again it's not just me i'm only kind of a, a cog in a wider and and I, I do feel growing slowly, but growing network of, of people trying to pose those issues, raise those issues and, and, and talk. Thank you so much. Uh, Bulgaria's unending transition to capitalism, uh, which you can find through Jacobin magazine. Um, Veronica, thank you. Veronica, thank you so much for taking the time to, to speak this morning. Thank you, Stefan. Thanks very much. Thanks for inviting me. Thank you. That was a conversation with author and lecturer Veronica Stoyanova talking about uh, the history of neoliberal economics in Bulgaria since 1989. You can search for her article through Jacobin um, publication. It's um, an important text. This is Free City Radio. Um, I'm your host, Stefan Christoph. Thank you for being with us. Um, next on the show, I wanted to go to uh, a piece of music this is a work from the Amec Collective, which is based in Sofia, Bulgaria. Um, really awesome, uh, independent, um, experimental music collective. Um, I'm going to share some of uh, their work here on Free City Radio.
thanks to Amec Collective in Sofia, in Bulgaria, for um, uh, your uh, experimental sounds from the Balkans. Um, check them out. It's Amec, A-M-E-K, uh, Collective, and they're based in Bulgaria. This is Free City Radio. Um, I'm your host, Stefan Christoph. This is the 23rd edition. Thank you for being with us. It is Tuesday, January 5th. Um, As the pandemic continues to impact the world, I really wanted to highlight some community voices um, to speak about the ways that social and economic inequalities have been extended, uh, have become worse in many cases in the context of the pandemic. That is, of course, true here in Montreal. I wanted to uh, play a couple of voices from a community press conference that I helped work on here in the city um, that was uh, calling for no pandemic austerity. I'm highlighting this now because there has been uh, a lot of discussion about the deficit, uh, the pandemic deficit, and not a lot of discussion about the ways that the federal liberal government in Canada has in fact not moved to um, address uh, economic inequality through uh, imposing greater taxes on Bay Street. A lot of corporations have made massive profits in the context of the pandemic. And I think it's really important to look at this, even if a huge amount of the mainstream media discussion is on the um, Canadian Emergency Response Benefit, the CERB, or on employment insurance, if you actually look at the numbers, a huge part of the deficit is not from uh, these expenditures uh, from the federal government, uh, but it is also around subsidies to uh, corporations. And also all of this exists in the context where Canada has one of the lowest corporate tax rates within the G7. This is a fact. It's very important to underline this. Um, So these are different voices of community organizations, advocates for communities who are disenfranchised, who are speaking about the context of the pandemic and how it uh, speaks to inequality. And some, I think, really important alarm bells were rang uh, by these voices. Um, So I wanted to highlight them here on Free City Radio podcast First, we're going to hear from Dolores Chu from the South Asian Women's Community Center. Thank you, Stefan. Thank you, Courage um, Coalition. Um, as you've heard, I am a member of the South Asian Women's Community Center. South Asia includes the former British colonies that are now Bangladesh, India, and Pakistan, Sri Lanka, as well as uh, Nepal, Bhutan, and Afghanistan. Okay. Um, At the South Asian Women's Community Center, we always acknowledge that we are on unceded lands of the Ghanaian Gahaga, and we thank them for welcoming all of us here, even as we recognize the centuries of colonialism and racism, and we pledge our solidarity and whatever we can do to help end this. So uh, at the South Asian Women's Community Center, the acronym is SOC, we have been working for four decades in our community and in collaboration and solidarity with other groups and communities for equality, rights, and justice. We provide a range of frontline services 
support services, settlement services, and we work in several South Asian languages such as Bengali, Punjabi, Tamil, Urdu, to name some. We work with uh, first-generation immigrants as well as children of immigrants uh, on issues of interpersonal violence, education, a whole range of things. We work in areas of gender and racial equality and justice. We serve communities who live inequalities, economic inequalities, racial inequalities, and gender inequalities. Like many others, including those at this table, we were aware of how the COVID-19 situation laid bare long-standing systemic and structural inequalities. It's been a told you so moment for us and many of us gathered here today. And as relief measures were put in place by governments, we saw this as a positive sign and a potential harbinger of what was possible. A world where everybody counted regardless of skin color, status, gender, where systems could be put in place to support equality for all, where systemic and structural inequalities that generate vulnerabilities could potentially endanger the entire population. That has been the current thinking under COVID. Initially, governments for a brief moment put the austerity mantra, where will the money come from? They put that on the back burner. The mantra that we have heard for many years now about tightening our belts, etc., etc. And we know from bitter experience that belts that are forced to tighten are on bellies that are already touching the backbone from deprivation. And these belts are not on well-fed bellies that protrude, bellies that enjoy the fruits of the labor of the exploited. So we are here today from the South Asian Women's Community Center to say that any economic imbalance but not be placed on poor and working people who are already disproportionately impacted by COVID-19. As governments sang the praises of the so-called guardian angels, many of them without status, or marginalized in low-paying, low-status work because of their immigrant status, it sounded like governments would finally put the recognition there, the recognition for these essential workers that they deserved. Sadly, as we are old hands at this game of politics, we didn't hold our breath. And even as we saw the opportunities to learn and build a society that would be genuinely equal in terms of gender, race, decolonization, we were only too aware that this honeymoon period would pass. As now the long game unfolds, old patterns are emerging. Deficit is being dangled over our heads. And so we are here today to demand that our governments do not once again pander to powerful economic and corporate interests at the expense of the racialized, vulnerable, and marginalized. Our communities are already suffering under the COVID-19 situation. And while we might say that we are all in danger, there is a difference between risk and vulnerability. While in theory, we are all at risk in practical terms as a consequence of economic and racialized disparities, we are not equally vulnerable. Past pandemics over the centuries have shown that some populations are more vulnerable. And we see it today as well when you look at the maps and the demographic distribution of the hotspots. These are in areas of racialized, low-income populations. 
that are marginalized through economic processes, immigration, non-recognition of education, and so on. At SOC, our team has been working tirelessly during this lockdown, providing all manner of support and services, personal, institutional, interpretive. We have also been working in collaboration with other groups, such as the Immigrant Workers Center, with workers who believe they have no option but to work in overcrowded and dangerous situations, in factories and warehouses, even today. And if they do not show up for work, they will be fired. They go to work, they get infected, they come back, they bring it to their families, and it spreads. And when we go to hospitals, we do not get the same attention. We need to use this COVID situation as a learning moment. We need to call governments out to do what is just. Research and our current realities demonstrate that a more robust and equal society can deal with dangers and pandemics much more effectively and efficiently. We are in this for the long game, very practically, but also morally, equality benefits us all. No to pandemic austerity for poor and working people in response to ballooning deficit. Let us work for that dream, which is possible, another world is possible. Thank you. That was Dolores Chu from the South Asian Women's Community Centre. We're hearing voices from a community press event that took place a few months ago in Montreal. But I wanted to highlight these uh, voices again because I think they're very relevant, very important uh, to the contemporary discussions that have been happening just in the past month about the um, fall financial update that was given by the federal government. Even on CBC, there's been uh, a lot of discussion about working people um, being responsible for this deficit uh, due to uh, the Canadian Emergency Response Benefit, the CERB, but not a lot of discussion on the ways that corporations have also been uh, extended a lot of financial leave by the government um, and also the fact that Canada... Uh, really, when it comes down to Bay Street, banks, for example, um, face one of the um, lowest corporate tax rates in the G7. Um, it's really important to underline that. I mentioned it before, but I wanted to, to just uh, underline that again. So next, we're going to hear from David Bleakney, uh, who is a vice president at the Canadian Union of Postal Workers. Thank you for the organizers, and uh, it's an honor today to be here uh, speaking with those who work on the front lines of struggle, uh, and thank you to those who've come today, placed some interest in this important topic about uh, just recovery and austerity. Um, and first of all, I, I'd like to thank you as a representative of the Canadian Union of Postal Workers uh, to all the public for the support uh, and kindness they gave to our members during this unprecedented time. Uh, our members continued to work and deliver in really uh, uncertain circumstances because they knew that it connected people, it kept products going to people's homes, and um, and uh, it was like Christmas-like conditions. And our, you know, as our bodies age, that kind of overbearing and overwork is is hard to do. And I just want to thank everyone for the patience they gave us and to understand it was a hard job for our members. Um, and um, thank you. 
and it also revolt, um, reveals the, uh, the, how important uh, investment in communities and public services are at a time like this and the, how the frontline workers, whether they be healthcare workers or paramedics or you know, just health and safety people and, and, and doctors and, and, and postal workers, but also let's not forget those in the front lines of warehousing and the gig economy who also kept things going for us. It wasn't the large corporations, it wasn't Jeff Bezos who's about to become the world's first trillionaire, but it was everyday folks who don't live in the world of you know, Hollywood breakups and, and what the latest celebrity you know, diversion is in our lives. It's about something more vital and something much more important. So our just recovery includes, uh, includes an understanding of the colonial mess that our ancestors have placed us in that's ongoing. It's an understanding that it's not about including indigenous voices, it's about elevating to the, to the historical and rightful place of the knowledge bearers of centuries, of eons of experience in this land of how we should treat each other and how we should behave. It's very different of the, the term Canadian values we, use, we often hear as this, these Canadian values of having a good home and you know, a good life or somehow unique because Canadian values would also include imprisoning Indigenous women at alarming rates, imprisoning people of colour and racialized persons at alarming rates, far more than it does the rest of the population. So our just recovery would include elevating Indigenous elders to the rightful place in, in society and understanding that our education systems have been one of fairy tales. I mean, personally, my geography textbook talked about, I uh, didn't mention slavery when referring to Africa, but it did mention how efficient and great the societies of South Africa and Rhodesia were at that time. So that was, the, as a child, the type of education I received in school. Lord knows the type of fairy tales and omissions that are still existing today uh, for our children. So our just recovery in terms includes the voices of all peoples from where, no matter where they come and what they look like. So those histories are elevated and heard for, uh, by all of us. And in terms of the racist, uh, the racist nature of a society, it was built on racism, right? We have to acknowledge that in this period that, and we continue to li live those kind of practices, you know, and, and when I hear this really hurtful thing that don't all lives matter, of course all lives matter, but maybe the question we should be asking ourselves as white persons and particularly white males is why do some lives seem to matter more than others? And we have to correct that for ourselves as well as our society. And so our, our uh, recovery includes that. It doesn't include austerity. It also includes a recognition, a really like in our hearts and minds, a really understanding of how patriarchy has robbed us of what we could be as humanity. The fact that women's voices and female teachers and uh, that, that we've reduced, for example, uh, feminism to just mean that you can drive a truck to or you can do things that men can do. No, for us to be whole, we need to embrace those kind of values and those kinds of healing mechanisms and those kinds of understandings of, of groups and people that are so missing in our society as we uh, elevate the, the stock markets as being the most important thing. So we need new terms of value in our recovery. We can't continue to have frontline people be used as fodder and sacrifice. We can't continue to pu uh, punish women. We can't continue to treat indigenous people like they're just an add-on to white society. No, we have to embrace a whole number of new values to, to soar and, and, and really celebrate you know, what we could be and what we could come. Uh, stock markets really, they may help some people become trillionaires and they may become a, like a nice monopoly game for some, but most of us don't play that game. We can't play that game. We have to feed our families and we have to live lives that are very real. 
And as a postal worker, I feel somewhat privileged in, in the fact that I don't have it as bad as most, but I can tell you it's not an easy job sometimes. So how as a postal worker, just as a humble postal worker, can we contribute to a just recovery? Well, first of all, I mean, I talked about the economy. You know, they like to talk about choice, that capitalism is all about choice. Well, frankly, we, we live in a capitalist system where we often don't have any choices. The choices are made for us, which is very confusing. Why can't Canadian communities have a choice? of a postal bank. Why not give people the choice where we're not paying uh, executive salaries and, and making people multi-millionaires for running banks while they represent multi-billionaires? Why don't we create a, a place where people could, cho could choose where those salaries are far more reasonable invested back into the communities we represent and so that we don't see the kind of profiteering that we've seen in this country for generations? And why can't we turn postal workers into an all, uh, or I mean the post offices into electric, uh, electric and sustainable post offices? Why can't we have an electric fleet? We cannot continue to use our atmosphere for a chemical sink, again, to drive stock markets and the wealthy. We're investing in pipelines that we know make no sense, that the future of oil is very uncertain, that the future of alternative systems is, 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 is very promising, and that's where investment is, and that's where the jobs are. So we could be turning the post office now to be an engine of the next economy, and we've seen its value during the crisis as being in every community and being able to provide a myriad of services if it were only allowed. Um, and you know, and why not the obvious one of checking into seniors? Our members are out working every day. We we treat the very young and the very oldest in our society as we as we've seen horribly. These also are not values I'm proud of, and these are not the values of the indigenous inhabitants of this land. So. Um, you know, we really have opportunities to, to just, I think, value ourselves and our society and our children and those that haven't uh, been born yet in new ways. If this crisis has taught us anything, it's that we can be something else. We can care for each other and we can create a society that actually our, our future generations could be somewhat proud of. So I just ask people to open their hearts and maybe accept this uh, historic moment as something special and look at the leaders. Look at the leaders of the movements like the, you know, the leaders of the Black Lives Matter and the, and, the, and the feminist leaders of that movement are, are really leading all of us in a path that we could really build something different and special for the future and know that what we've been living is a kind of colonial lie, it's a capitalist lie, it's unsustainable and eventually it's going to kill all life on this planet. So um, I'm just saying, you know, I just, just, just as, a, as a postal worker, we're trying to play our humble part in being part of the change uh, that we know is needed and that so that the, the most marginalized are not the ones who pay for austerity. If there's to be any austerity, it's against the guilty who've created crimes, against people for profit, and have punished generations of, uh, of, of First Nations and women and racialized people. Those are the people that we should be practicing austerity with and clawing back some of the value that we've created and generate functioning, uh, healthy, sustainable communities. So i just like to say, um, Thank you again for coming today, and uh, please be kind to your postal worker. Thank you. That was David Bleakney from the Canadian Union of Postal Workers. Uh, speaking at a community press conference that brought together different organizations, unions, and activists to speak about the urgent uh, importance of there being no pandemic austerity for poor and working people. Uh, this is Free City Radio. 
Uh, I'm your host, Stefan Christoph. I wanted to highlight one more voice from this community press event, and that is Nakuset, uh, who is the director of the Native Women's Shelter in Montreal and also Resilience Montreal, which is an organization that really works hard uh, and pushes uh, to support um, people struggling with poverty and homelessness with a particular focus on Indigenous people. Since the beginning of the pandemic, Resilience Montreal has been on the front lines uh, supporting um, Indigenous people struggling with homelessness. Uh, they're right downtown in Montreal, uh, providing meals, providing support, uh, providing resources, uh, and also um, just social support for people struggling in the context of the pandemic. So I wanted to highlight also Nakuset's voice here on Free City Radio. My name is Nakuset. I'm a Cree from uh, Saskatchewan Treaty 6. Um, and I've been running the Native Women's Shelter um, and working there for the last uh, 21 years. And recently we opened uh, Resilience Montreal last November. So I'm working with a population of um, indigenous people um, and a large homeless population. And I think that when COVID hit and, you know, the health, um, the government and uh, the health professional said, you know, stay in your home and be safe. That was a message that the homeless uh, population uh, could not participate in because they are in the streets. And more and more organizations closed down and um, they were left to their own devices from the mid-March until today. So they have had to live outside in the cold 24-7 and now they're battling the heat, the rain, like all the elements. And it really is demoralizing to their morale. And they are really having an incredibly difficult time. And, you know, for Resilience Montreal, we made the decision to step outside and work with them. We were the only organization that were literally in the streets with the population because we were not going to turn our back on them. But it's been incredibly difficult. And, um, you know, we're very conscious that there is a second wave coming. And we are doing everything that we can to help and support them. We are literally giving out 500 meals a day. We also have a tent where we give out blankets and sleeping bags and underwear and socks and shoes and ponchos and whatever it is that they need because they can't go anywhere else. And I appreciate that the city of Montreal has put in some measures for the homeless, but it is a fraction of the population that is able to receive them. And now that we are, um, you know, deconfinement mode and opening the doors, the services specifically for the homeless population are getting minimized. And I'm very much hoping that uh, they will consider new services, that they will find monies to help. Because in the last three weeks, uh, we had one community member that was near Resilience Montreal that got hit by a car and died. And last week, we had someone on Park Avenue who got hit by a car and died. So we have two Inuit women that um, are left in the streets. They are literally in the streets because the safe places that they were able to find in terms of parking lots were all blocked off so that they couldn't use them. 
And today we'll re we will be doing a memorial at Cabot Square to honor them because they need hope to know that the community cares about them and that we are fighting for them. And we will do what we can and we will push and we will speak to governments and we will continue to advocate on their behalf and I would appreciate if when you see someone on the streets that you can show them kindness because you have no idea what they have been through first to be on the streets because nobody just says hey sounds like it might be fun I should try living on the streets you have had to have gone through an enormous amount of trauma to end up on the streets but to live on the streets through this pandemic has been incredibly difficult and I'm hoping for the future that we as a society can do better that we can find a way and there has been an enormous amount of support for Resilience Montreal and I just want to thank all the community members that have been sending food and clothing to Resilience because that helps but there is a second wave coming and right now we are waiting for additional services this is really heartbreaking because we've had one Ojibwe person that came to Cabot Square and was in so much trauma and found no relief so he drank hand sanitizer and in a two-week period he was hospitalized nine times and there was nothing for us to do for him we did everything that we could we called the CS we called public health we called the police we called every person available that could find the services for him and at the end of the day we drove him to Ottawa to the Oaks because that's the only place that could help him and we need to do better here in Montreal we need to start creating more services so that we don't have to go out of our way but this person is getting the services that he needs right now so I'm very happy to say that but we need to do better and I just want to thank um, thank you for letting me speak today for inviting me uh, to this conference and um, hopefully you know the message will get out that the most vulnerable population is suffering and as a society we can do better Thank you. That was Nakoset, uh, the director of the Native Women's Shelter in Montreal. These last three voices were all uh, featured at a community press event, No to Pandemic Austerity. And uh, the idea of this event was to uh, bring together different organizations and voices, unions, community groups, to highlight the importance of there not being uh, an austerity-driven uh, economic policy post-pandemic. We're seeing uh, political forces uh, on the right um, in the last parts of 2020, and I'm sure that will continue now in 2021, mobilizing to try to place the blame of the um, pandemic deficit on poor and working people. Um, and this is really not the direction we should be going. We should be looking at the ways that the pandemic exposed economic inequalities, facts like, uh, you know, Canada's extremely low corporate tax rate, the subsidies given to oil and gas corporations. These are all things that we must explore and address. Um, so if you'd like more information about this particular press event, it was hosted by the Courage Coalition, 
they're at couragecoalition.ca. It took place at the Casa del Popolo um, community arts space and bar in Montreal. Of course, it's closed in the pandemic, but um, it was uh, just um, before the second wave began, and it was at an outdoor socially distanced event, so I wanted to highlight that. Um, this has been the 23rd edition of Free City Radio Podcast. I'm Stefan Christoph here in Montreal. We broadcast every Tuesday. If you like what you hear, please tell your friends. Uh, encourage them to subscribe to Free City Radio. Um, you can find us on Apple Podcasts. Give us a rating if you like what you hear. If you want to reach me about anything, I'm at stefan.christoff at gmail.com. My Twitter handle is Spirodon, S-P-I-R-O-D-O-N. So thanks for being with us. In this time, I also thought it was important to share a track that brings motivation and movement. This is a great artist out of South Africa, T-N-S. Love this piece, been listening to it lately. Thanks for tuning in, and uh, we'll be with you next Tuesday. Take it easy.